We also begin the season of Advent this morning as we've been remembering. The season when we take time to, to remember and to reflect on our need for a king. A king which came for us and a king which is coming again. And so it's a time to prepare our hearts for, for Christmas when, when we celebrate the coming of that king. Even as we also look forward to and prepare our hearts for the king's coming back again. So today's chapter of the story really begins to move us into that place of anticipation. So let's get into the story. It's the time of the judges. The tribes of Israel are disunited. They're fractured. They're they're actually fighting each other at times. They're massacring one another even. If you read the book of Judges, there's grisly stories in there. And and their enemies are oppressing them too. The, The Midianites, the Philistines, and... This is all as a result of their ignoring God and their covenant with God and worshiping other gods. And so Samuel, at the end of the book of Judges, is the judge and the prophet who's trying to lead them. And they finally say to him, as he's getting old, they say, look, you won't be with us forever. And we're ready for a king like the other nations have. And there's a real ambivalence here, a real tension in the story about whether having a king is a good thing. On the one hand, without a king, they rebel against God. They fight each other. They're disunified. Everyone just does whatever's right in their own eyes. And yet, on the other hand, God is their king. If they'd only obey God, and and Samuel warns them about human kings, that, that a human king will tax them and oppress them and enslave them. And is that what they really want? So, which is it? Is a king a good thing? Or is a king a bad thing? And the answer, as we'll find out, is... It depends. (laughs) As the story continues, we'll we'll see how this tension, this ambivalence about having a king will get resolved. So first we have King Saul, Israel's first king. He's an ideal king from the perspective of that culture. He's what you would call tall, dark, and handsome. A head taller than everyone else. Ideal from a human perspective, but as as it turns out, he's, he's far from ideal from God's perspective. Because Saul is religious but he isn't obedient. He'll he'll make all the sacrifices, he'll do the religious things, but his heart isn't really turned toward God and he doesn't really want to follow God. And so ultimately, God rejects him because he doesn't really trust God or obey God. And God turns to a different king to choose a kind of king that God would choose for his people. And, and here we learn what the resolution is to the problem of, of having a king. It's, it's the kind of king you have, not one like the other nations have, not a king based on human strengths or size or power or smarts or leadership or charisma, but a king based on God's criteria, which we see in the king that God chooses, King David. Now, David is a mere boy. He's the runt of the litter when he's chosen. Not much from a human perspective, But God says, don't judge by the external appearances. Look at the heart. David is a young man after my own heart. So what's David like? Well, he has fierce faith, right? He's he's bold, he's courageous for God because he, he trusts God and he trusts God's power. He's also a passionate worshiper. His his heart is fully devoted to God, not just for show or ritual, but for a real relationship. David genuinely loves God and and wants God to be lifted up and honored. And David also has a soft, contrite heart. 
David surrenders himself to God. He confesses when he does wrong. He's humble. And he lives this way. So even though God says to him, you're the one I want to be king, David refuses to seize power from Saul, who is king. David humbles himself before Saul, and he waits for God to lift him up. And then later when David is king, David's own son Absalom rises up and, and tries to take the throne for him. But again, David won't defend his power. He, he lets go of it. And again, he waits to see if God will uphold his leadership. David has a completely countercultural, upside-down view of leadership and power. He's humble. He's a servant. He won't grasp power. Instead, he allows himself to be oppressed and he suffers his way into leadership. And that's why he's fit to be king. That's the kind of king that God can use. Does that sound like another servant king, a a son of David who comes later, who God later raises up? (laughs) That's the only kind of leader fit to lead in God's kingdom. A humble servant king who holds his power loosely. Also, don't miss that David's from the line of Judah. If you go way back in the story to the days of Abraham and his grandson Jacob, Judah was one of Jacob's 12 sons. And Judah was the one brother, if you know the story of Joseph, who ultimately was willing to sacrifice himself to go to prison in place of his brother Benjamin because he knew that if Benjamin went to prison, it would break his father's heart and he loved his father, so he sacrificed himself. Judah had that servant, sacrificial approach to leadership. And so God promised that one day it would be from Judah's line that God's king would come. So David is chosen by God from the tribe of Judah, not impressive, humanly speaking, but humble, full of faith, and so pleasing to God. And so God uses David as this new chapter of the story begins. Under David's leadership, the the 12 uh, unfaithful, rebellious, divided tribes of Israel are finally united into a single nation. And and what is one of David's most notable acts after he becomes king? Well, he goes to a place called Jerusalem, which is a Canaanite stronghold, almost impregnable. and, And with God's help, David conquers it and makes it his capital. And so Jerusalem becomes the epicenter, the key location in the story. It becomes the place of God's throne through which God rules through his king. Jerusalem becomes also the place of God's presence through the temple where God dwells. And the part, the section of of the city of Jerusalem where the king's throne and where God's temple are is also called Zion, by the way. Well, as... Let's look then um, at these two themes a bit more, God's throne and God's temple. First, God's throne. Even though Israel has a king, God is still the real king of his people. And how does God rule? Well, God sets his chosen human king on the throne in Jerusalem, and God calls this king God's son. We, We see this celebrated in some of the Psalms. For example, Psalm 2, God speaks, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then the king speaks. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. 
Also in Psalm 80, verses 15 to 17, the psalmist prays, Watch over the son you have raised up for yourself. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. Now I know we hear this word son and we think of Jesus, and rightly so because Jesus is the fulfillment. But don't miss that before the fulfillment, God calls the kings, like David, his sons. And they reign on God's throne, on God's behalf. And this is all covenant language, by the way, in the Psalms. You remember what we learned last week about suzerain-vassal covenants, if you were here last Sunday. A great king, a suzerain, makes a covenant with a lesser king. And in that culture, the suzerain would call the vassal, the lesser king, his son. And so God makes a covenant with a human king, David, and with his descendants. And God will protect and provide for the king if the king remains faithful, but what if the king rebels? Well, there are covenant curses, right? If, if you're a vassal and you rebel against the great king you're in covenant with, it's treason. <laughs> and the suzerain comes and punishes you. And so God is the king of his people. And how does God rule? God makes a covenant with a vassal, with the son of David, and installs that king in Zion, so to speak, um, as, as his son, the, the king who rules on his behalf, and that king rules over God's kingdom. And what's the king's job? It's to protect and save God's people from their enemies. It's to make sure God's law is being obeyed and carried out. It's ultimately to make sure that God's people are being a blessing to the nations. And what if the king fails? What if the king rebels against God? Well, if you read the books of Kings and Chronicles, then you know that as the king goes, so go the people. The king is the people's representative before God. And if, if, if the king is faithful to God, his suzerain, his whole kingdom is blessed. But if the king rebels, the people pay the price as well. Now, as modern Americans, we as individualists find this really hard to take, right? We want to determine our own destiny. But, but think about it. We can't escape being connected to something bigger. Leadership matters. If our president, our Congress make good choices, we all benefit. If they make bad choices, we all suffer. And that's how it was even more so in a monarchy with, with God's people. The king represents the people, and as the, people went, as the king went, so went the people. And you see that in the book of Kings and Chronicles. And, and so it's absolutely vital that as God's people, we have a good, good king, right? A son of God who will be faithful to God. Can you see how the story is leading toward King Jesus? Well, then we get to one of the best parts of, of this chapter of the story when kings rule. David has been faithful to God. He's united the tribes. He's pushed Israel's enemies out of the land that God promised God's people. And so God's people enjoy rest and security and peace and prosperity under David. And then David says, let me build a temple, a house for God. But how does God respond? We read it this morning with these incredible words, words of promise and words of grace. 2 Samuel 7. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish my kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son 
My love will never be taken away from him. It's another covenant. Only this time it's not a conditional covenant. There are no conditions, no stipulations in this covenant. Just an unconditional promise. No matter what, David will never fail to have a descendant on God's throne. And God will never take his love away from David's descendants. What grace, what faithfulness, what earned and undeserved blessing for God's people. Do you see how at every, at every point it's not the people's obedience as much as it's God's faithfulness that keeps the story of salvation moving forward? David will have an unending dynasty. God will forever have a human king on the throne to rule over his kingdom. Well, as we continue the story, David eventually dies and his son Solomon succeeds him as king. And through Solomon, God begins to fulfill this promise. Solomon builds a house. He builds a temple for God on Zion. And it's beautiful and it's luxurious. Again, as with the tabernacle that we saw last Sunday, it's decorated like the Garden of Eden. And God's presence comes and fills it. God is dwelling with his people, present with them on Zion. God's king is on the throne, exercising God's rule over the people. The people are in the promised land. God has finally fulfilled his promises to Abraham. God has made Abraham into a great nation. God has brought them into the promised land. And now God wants to bless all nations through his people. And so at this time, we have lists and chronicles of of all David's armed guards who were in his retinue. And if you read the list, they're from all over the place, all nations. They're Hittites and Moabites and Ammonites. And then there's Solomon, whose, whose fame and whose wisdom become renowned through the whole world. And and a queen comes all the way from Sheba to see and to seek out his wisdom. The nations are being blessed. Abraham's people are being a witness. They're fulfilling the purpose and the destiny God gave them way back when God told Moses in Exodus 19 in the covenant there, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's still our calling too. Also, at this point in the story, we see the development of the wisdom tradition, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, etc. They, they say that, that the wisdom of God fills in the cracks between the laws of God. That the laws can't cover every little detail, every conceivable situation. And so wisdom comes along and teaches us how to live in the nuance and the texture of life. And of course, Solomon was known for his wisdom that God gave him. What we also have here with the establishment of Zion as as the place of God's throne and of God's presence in the temple is the completion of the salvation that God began way back when God rescued Israel from Egypt. This is cool, this part. Listen to this. This is the way that people back then thought about salvation. The, The archaeologists and historians have found this pattern again and again in ancient documents. And we find it in the Old Testament. A king goes off and fights a battle. We could have that slide. Uh, He rescues his people from the enemy and he brings them home to freedom. He's celebrated as king. And then in celebration of the victory, the king builds a palace and enjoys and rests in the palace and the people joyfully serve him. So battle, rescue, kingship, palace. This is the storyline of the Old Testament up to this point. Battle and rescue, Egypt and the Red Sea, 
Then travel home through the desert and into the promised land. Then kingship is established. And then a temple is built, God's palace, God's temple, to, to enjoy, for God to enjoy and to live in. And we see this storyline right in Exodus 15, right after the Red Sea, as the people are rejoicing and celebrating with singing and tambourines that God has rescued them from Egypt. You might know the song, I will sing unto the Lord, and he has triumphed, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Hee-haw, right? If, if you know the song, if you're a child of the 80s, like me. That's celebrating the battle and the victory. And then what comes next in the song in Exodus 15? Bringing home those the king has rescued. Verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them. To where? To your holy dwelling. That's temple building. Verse 17 amplifies it. The place, Lord, you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. And then it ends with kingship in verse 18. It reverses the order in which the Old Testament story actually happens, but you can do that when you're writing poetry and singing songs. The Lord reigns forever and ever. That's the way it ends with a big crescendo. But that's the pattern. We, we see it in the Old Testament story. It's the pattern of the gospel stories too, by the way, especially you see it in the gospel of Mark. First battle, Jesus's Victory over Satan and temptation in the wilderness and then his earthly ministry, his miracles, his mighty deeds against demons and disease and death, setting captives free. And then Jesus leading the redeemed, those he's rescued, teaching them on the way to Jerusalem how to live a redeemed kingdom life. That's that's the journey of discipleship. And then Jesus is crowned king in Jerusalem through his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his glorification. And then what does Jesus do? He builds a house. He builds a temple and lives in it. And who's that temple? We are. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Again, it's really cool, but I'm getting us ahead of myself in the story because we're still back with Solomon. And guess what? There's bad news. There's bad news. No sooner do we reach the zenith of the story that it all starts to fall apart. Solomon completes this process of salvation for God's Old Testament people, building God's temple, God's palace. And no sooner is Solomon done than he starts chasing military power and alliances and chasing women and oppressing his people and worshiping other gods. And so by the time Solomon dies, his kingdom is about to fracture in two. And and after he dies, ten tribes go off to do their own thing and they they never really come wholeheartedly back to God after that. And about two and a half tribes remain, the, the main one being Judah. They're called Judah. And, and they're, they're only a little better, but they aren't very faithful either. But God has made a covenant to David, right? And, and so for David's sake, God stays faithful. God puts a descendant of David on the throne of Judah. God hangs in there, in the temple, in Jerusalem with the people. And here's where the prophets come in. They're messengers from God to God's people and especially to God's kings. And the prophet's job is to remind everyone about the covenant. Hey, remember Moses? Remember the covenant that God and you made? You're supposed to be faithful to God. You're supposed to keep God's law. And if you do, remember there are blessings. And if you don't, remember the curses and the consequences. And so the prophets are covenant representatives. They're, they're in a way, covenant prosecutors. 
And often the kings, the people, they won't listen. Some kings like Hezekiah and Josiah do listen, but other kings just persecute the prophets and they go their own way in rebellion against God and against the covenant. And so eventually the northern ten tribes are, are carried off into exile in Assyria or by Assyria and we never hear from them again, as a whole nation at least. There are individuals who can trace their lineage back to one of these tribes. But as a whole, these tribes disappear from God's story, historically speaking. And only Judah is left. Why? Because God promised. God said to David that David would always have a king on his throne in Zion. But Judah's kings turn more and more away from God too until they're sacrificing their own children in the fire to the pagan god Molech. They're slaughtering God's own people, filling Jerusalem with blood. So question, what's God going to do? On the one hand, God said, if you break my covenant, if you rebel against me, there are curses. There there are bad things. These are the bad things that are going to happen. And the prophets spell this out. They rehearse the the curses from the book of Deuteronomy. But on the other hand, God promised David he'd always have a son sitting on God's throne. God's kingdom ruled by David's line would be everlasting. The the prophets remind God's people of God's faithful promise. And so what's God going to do? How's God going to reconcile these two things? Well, next week we find out. But for this morning, let me ask you as you prepare, as we prepare this Advent for the coming of the King. Where do you stand in relation to the ultimate and final King, the ultimate and final Son of David, in relation to Jesus, through whom God is now establishing God's kingdom and working out God's purposes for the world? Do you just follow Jesus for what he can do for you, the battle, the the miracles, the blessings he can give you, the freedom he can give you? Or are you also following Jesus both through the desert and into the promised land? Are you a disciple? Can we leave that slide up? Boy, the formatting went crazy on it. Yeah, there we go. That's the one. Um, are, are you a disciple? Are you letting Jesus teach you how to live and how to walk in the ways of his kingdom? And then one, one, what difference does, does it make to you that God has glorified Jesus as Christ, as the ultimate son of David, as king over God's kingdom? Is Jesus just a savior for you, just a shepherd and a teacher like Moses was? Or is Jesus also your king and your Lord? Do you live under Jesus' rule? Do you seek first Jesus' kingdom? Because Christ's rule is the place where all of God's promises are fulfilled. And all of God's purposes for the world are realized. There's no other way except under the king that God has set on the throne. And so then finally, are you letting Christ build you as part of this, his temple, his church, where God himself dwells? Are are you going it alone? Or are you part of, of God's house, God's family, depending and seeking more of God's spirit, more of God's presence together? Which of these four, which aspect of Christ's salvation is God calling you this morning to welcome more fully into your life as you prepare for Christ's coming this Advent season. Let's pray as we prepare for communion. God, thank you for your story, which takes all these mixed and garbled 
perspectives, which are the stories that the world is telling us and the story of our own life, which is so important and central to us. Thank you for this story, which puts it all into perspective, which corrects it, which shows us how you see it, which shows us how you're doing, and which is preparing us to receive the king who you sent into the world to be on your throne over your kingdom forever. Thank you that that king was a humble king as we now remember at this table. Amen.